with that public scrutiny comes a level of engagement and ownership that the public feel that they have with the team. And I think all you can do is back yourself to make good decisions and be able to stand behind your choices and the decisions that you make. But it's not always easy because sometimes it's emotional and it's irrational and it's not based on fact. And you just have to pick which battle you're going to fight that day. Um, and you need to stand by that you're making good decisions and not everyone's going to like them all of the time. But ultimately, uh, you've got to keep doing what you think is absolutely right for the sport. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole. On this episode of the Sports People Recruitment Active CEO Podcast, we speak with a wonderful leader who has navigated some major transformations in a very short period of time. She went to Pakaranga College in New Zealand before completing a Bachelor of Commerce specialising in accounting and tax from the University of Auckland. Today's guest has also completed an Institute of Directors Companies Director course, is a certified New Zealand Institute of Chartered Accountant, and has a postgraduate certificate in management studies at the University of Waikato. Her career began in accounting and finance with roles in New Zealand and the UK at PricewaterhouseCoopers, Discovery Networks, GlaxoSmithKline, Orange, and Telecom New Zealand. While at Telecom New Zealand, she spent time as a next generation marketing offers lead before returning to finance as head of finance, strategy, and services at Netball New Zealand. In her current role of Chief Executive of Netball New Zealand, she has led the implementation of the whole of Netball Plan strategy, has managed the move back to a domestic elite competition, and is using all her experience to implement the recommendations following a recent independent review into the national team. I have the privilege to introduce you to a respected sports leader who has seen the world and is striving in her dream job Jenny Wiley. Jenny, welcome to the show. Thank you, Craig. That's quite an introduction. Oh, it's well deserved. So netball has been a major part of your life. What was your first experience of holding on to a netball? Well, I think um, like many young girls in New Zealand, um, my experience started at, the, at school with my mum turning up to coach and I remember standing with my back against a brick wall and being told, you'll learn to catch or else this is really going to hurt. So um, <laughs> that was kind of my experience, but I absolutely loved it. Um, and I couldn't get enough. And what do you know, all these years later, I'm still involved. Wonderful. So Nepal is a great country to grow up in. Very safe, a lot of fun. So what was life like growing up for you as a child in Auckland? And, and what brought a sparkle to your eye from a future point of view? Yeah, well, from my perspective, um, I grew up and it was really revolved around netball. That's my sort of earliest memories was either that or being on the sideline of the tennis courts. Um, my mum played for New Zealand and so I spent many, many hours watching the white line 
and kind of realized that team sport was my preference, um, much to mum's dismay. And, um, and then it was really around Friday night being so incredibly excited about the game the next day that I could barely sleep and it probably drove mum and dad crazy. So that was my earliest memories, those cold, wet mornings at the courts um, and then being able to later on in life go and watch New Zealand, Australia play at that silver ferns and diamonds level and being completely enthralled by their abilities and what they kind of stood for. So, yeah, pretty pretty happy upbringing. Um, Dad was a massive supporter on the sideline. I think he's one of the few dads back in the olden days that was out there with me. Um, but incredibly proud of everything that we were able to do and the fun that we had along the way. Excellent. So you started out your career in finance. What led you to going abroad early in your career and what were the biggest learnings from working in the UK? So I was re always good at numbers. It kind of came naturally. And, and as a 17-year-old at school, last year of school thinking, what am I going to do? I really thought, well, I'm kind of good at the numbers, so I might as well do something with that. Um, went to uni, but the fascinating thing was I was more interested in um, history and I did an ancient Egyptian history paper in my last year at uni because I was fascinated about um, the history, the travel, the opportunities. So for me, I was always going to travel. It was a, just a matter of timing. And as most young Kiwis and Aussies do, um, it was always going to be on the agenda. But I got my qualification before I went and that kind of set a platform to be able to have a have a reasonable job that um, opened up opportunities in the workplace, but also travel as much as I possibly could. Um, and that's pretty much what I did. And uh, I was just fortunate to be able to go and see the world for two or three, four months a year and then work um, in London at the time and uh, get that best of both worlds experience. So I was very, very lucky. So working in companies like PwC is a, is a great recognition, obviously, of the hard work you put in at university. Uh, what were some of the big learnings of being in such a major global sort of corporation that sort of focuses in that accounting and, and finance and strategy part of the world? Well, massive learning that you are always, you know, when you start out, I was in a graduate recruitment process um, and there were, you know, a hundred other uh, young students going through this. So how were you going to stand out from the crowd? And what I had is uh, just being me. Um, I was, you know, get reasonable grades, but if everyone's in that same boat, what is going to be your differentiator? And that was a time where they were starting to recruit based on everything else you could bring to the role. Your academic ability was just almost a hygiene factor. And so being in these big corporates and being able to relate to everyone from the CEO, the board, down to the reception and, and you know, everyone in between was really increasingly important. And that was one of the things that I was able to develop along the way alongside a really strong finance and strategy skill set. So I really flourished in that environment, got a lot of learning but uh, was ready to spread my wings and head offshore. Fantastic. So going from the green countryside of New Zealand to kind of those dark 
uh, wet days in London must have been quite a transformation for you? Oh, it was massively different. Um, you know, people wondered what I was actually saying half the time when I needed to talk to them. They thought it was hilarious what I was asking for. Um, they just wanted to ring up and have a chat because I was different and unusual in the industries that I was working in. Um, but big adjustment personally as well, uh, away from, you know, miles and miles away from home and those established support networks. So it's all about sort of broadening your horizon, um, learning from others around you. And um, it was fantastic, a great experience. So when did you realize that management and leadership were what you were suited to? And how did you find the transition from being an employee to leading employees? So I've got that unusual case of having been at Netball New Zealand for nine years now and having the last sort of six or seven of them in the finance space transitioning within an organisation that you're already so familiar with is quite different to coming in as a CEO without that previous experience in the industry. So it takes time. Um, but I think for me, leadership's always been something that I've fell into, whether intentionally or not. So I was always the captain of the netball team. I was never the best player, um, but uh, it was always, you know, the person as a as a leader. Um, so I think it's just been a natural thing. And um, in transitioning into my role as CEO uh, near on three years ago was another period of, wow, I'm no, not a peer anymore. I'm actually um, the CEO of this organization. And so trying to find your feet in that way is also a new challenge, which is, which is great. Yeah, definitely. So how would your board describe your leadership style? Well, I think the board would just um, completely talk about um, being authentic. I am who I am. I don't try to pretend to be anyone else, it's kind of what you get on the tin. Um, but one of the things that they're very aware of for me and it's feedback that I've got from my leadership team is um, I'm strong on challenging privately and supporting publicly. So we will have really robust conversations, whether it be at the board level or with my leadership team. And, and as we'll probably get onto, there's been a lot of challenge in the last little while. Um, and that'll be private, and then I'm 100% with you when I'm public, and that's just um, the nature of who I am. Authenticity is such a, a, an important and integral part of being a leader. So how would you define a high-performing CEO or leader? Well, I think to be high-performing, you need to wrap yourself around with experts in their field. The best and most high-performing people that I'm aware of know when to ask for help when they need it. They don't need to have all the answers, but they need to be able to recognize when the right time is to bring those people in to help them. And that hasn't been more apparent than, you know, when we went through our Silver Ferns review is you've got to have those people that you trust, your go-to people around you um, at those times. And, and I believe that creates high-performing CEOs. Love that. Very, very good. So balancing work in the business versus working on the business is a major challenge for any CEO. How do you approach this? Oh, 
Ask my leadership team how they approach me when I'm working in it far too much. Um, you know, they, they give me a serve, and, and rightly so. Um, in sport, it's really hard in a sport our size to be able to do both and swing between the two. Sometimes you do have to get your hands dirty and get in amongst it. Um, but then bringing yourself back up to actually be able to look at it broadly and, and set a strategy for the go forward. So I have a team that's really honest and will say, Jen, you need to, you know, get back in your box. And I'm really happy about that because then they feel that they can readdress the balance and and tell me where they need me as opposed to where I think they might need me. So I, I actually have a lot of trust and we have a fantastic relationship in that space. Um, but it's it's really hard. It's always a juggle. It's a it's great to have those people around you that hold you accountable to what you should be doing as a CEO. So, so do you say so from a working on the business point of view, how often would you be spending with your leadership team? And like, do you have monthly reviews, weekly reviews, quarterly reviews, yearly reviews? How do you approach that? So I would hate to be sitting in, we do have um, uh, six monthly performance reviews, but my view is if you're getting new news at six months, then I haven't done my job. So our leadership team gets together formally every month, um, but I have informal catch-ups with my team every two weeks, and then even less formal phone calls or um, text check-ins on as is depending on whatever works on at the, that time so we're really connected a lot of the time and um, I w I'm not much for waiting for the formality to have a conversation with my team. So for many people outside of New Zealand they would think of the All Blacks as kind of everything that happens in New Zealand but what they probably don't know is netball is a huge part of the New Zealand psyche and culture and public opinion is always at the forefront when decisions are made. So how do you cope with that intense public scrutiny, especially when the team may not be playing as well as they desire? Well, good question, because we've certainly had a lot of that recently. And you can't shy away from it, because that, with that public scrutiny comes a level of engagement and ownership that the public feel that they have with the team. And I think all you can do is back yourself to make good decisions and be able to stand behind your choices and the decisions that you make. But it's not always easy because sometimes it's emotional and it's irrational and it's not based on fact. And you just have to pick which battle you're going to fight that day. Um, and you need to stand by that you're making good decisions and not everyone's gonna like them all of the time, but ultimately uh, you've gotta keep doing what you think is absolutely right for the sport. So on that, do you spend time with say some of the other big sports in New Zealand or even overseas and say talk with say Steve Chu as the CEO of New Zealand Rugby or do you talk with your counterpart in Australia at Netball Australia uh, or other people around how they deal in that space as well and, and how can you work together to ensure that one you can sustain the mental and uh, the mental energy that you need to be an effective leader while you're coping with these challenging aspects of the public scrutiny 
Well, I think as a leader going through um, a scenario like we did recently with our Silver Ferns review, you've got to have your go-to people, whether they're in the sport or outside of the sport. And so I've got, you know, a couple of key people that I go to that I can speak really openly and go, you know, this is this is what's happened. I'm either I'm unsure of this, that, and the other. And I think that's really important for anyone in a leadership role because sometimes it can be incredibly lonely and you're expected to have all those answers. So um, I, I've used people like that in the last sort of 18 months quite a lot. Um, and then I will absolutely have a, have a conversation with my counterpart at Netball Australia because there's bigger picture questions out there that we've all got accountability to um, solve collectively and then within New Zealand sport we've all got a collective responsibility to make sure that our young Kiwis remain active and that sport is continuing to be an option for those that want to participate on a mass level or those elite athletes so uh, you use different people for different things at different times and um, collectively if you can get them more right than wrong you kind of come on the right side of the ledger. So as you're sort of talking to there we'll now move into obviously a very challenging time in 2018 when the, the national netball team the Silver Ferns following what would many would describe as quite an unsuccessful 2018 Commonwealth Games campaign. From a leadership point of view, how did you approach the independent review of this campaign? So as a relatively new CEO, I approached, I didn't know what needed to be done. I just knew that our normal process that we take after every pinnacle event, which is a an, um, sort of internal review, wasn't enough. Uh, it felt that we needed to go deeper because these issues did not, just occur at Commonwealth Games. They were a cumulative effect of what had been going on in our system for a little while. And so whilst the outcome looked like the performance at the Commonwealth Games, there were things that needed to to change um, and there were some systemic changes that were required. So calling on um, Sport New Zealand here in New Zealand, I just said, look, I think we need to go and look further, we need to address some sort of systemic issues, what's the process? And that's where we ended up in a position where we felt the right thing to do was an independent review, because that gave the athletes, the coaches, the management, uh, some confidence around the independence of the process, that it wasn't being driven with a specific agenda and it wasn't being driven by the sport because we needed to be accountable to all of our stakeholders and so we had an independent panel drive our review which in hindsight was absolutely the right thing for us to do. So from for a listener's point of view here so correct me if I'm wrong the Silver Ferns were number two in the world going into Commonwealth Games and for the first time ever didn't even make the semi-finals. What correct so what were the you know, sort of top three or five issues that were identified at that time? So people have something to relate to here as we move forward in the conversation. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things in high performance is the environment for athletes is inherently unsafe. 
because you can be selected or not selected at any time. But for a high-performing team, you need to feel safe, you need to feel vulnerable to share your strengths and weaknesses. So it's a bit of a conundrum. And what we had had over the last few years is a group that were doing what was safe for them as opposed to being vulnerable and open to um, changing the way they performed. And we had a group of athletes that weren't necessarily holding one another to account for the things off the court. And let's be realistic here, our netball, um, our netball players aren't players from other codes. There was no bar brawls and handbags at, at 20 paces. But in our sense of the word, it was, you know, if you're not living the values of the team, who's going to hold you to account? So you get a combination of that, and if that isn't addressed really early on, it manifests. We also had a campaign plan, which is the kind of thing you have for a four-year um, World Cup cycle, and everyone understood the plan at a high level, but they really didn't know their place in delivering that plan. So it's like in any big organization, you know, the strategy document that goes on the shelf to collect dust. It's being able to make it real and relevant to each person who's playing a part in that team, whether they are the coach, the the athlete, sports science. So we had a bit of a disconnect there. Um, and what also happened is sometimes you can still perform if your team isn't functioning as you would like. And if you looked at the Silver Ferns results in the sort of, um, up to six months prior to the Commonwealth Games, there was a view, we were tracking kind of where we've always been, performing well against other nations and having a good old tussle with Australia on a regular basis. We beat Australia in July the year before Commonwealth Games um, here at home. So we kind of thought we were on track and we went into a Constellation Cup series against Australia and the decline was spectacular and there were a lot of red flags that got raised at that time because we had turned from a 10 to 12 goal winning margin to a 12, a 16 and a 20 goal deficit which is quite significant in, in our sport. Um, so with that came a loss of confidence. Um, Increasingly, the public scrutiny was heightened around both the team, the coach, and inadvertently the management. And they were living in a, in a state where they didn't feel safe, they weren't vulnerable, they weren't being honest and open, and then you end up at Commonwealth Games with a result like we had. So um, it, you, you get... You get what you put out there at training. You get what you do behind um, behind the closed doors in the team environment. And therefore, the result played out um, to the worst possible scenario that could have been envisaged for us at Silver Ferns level. So you talk about there around the players and the that high-performance environment and, and obviously the support people around them. Did the review extend further beyond that, say, to the administration level? Absolutely. We had to be really honest with ourselves and the lens needed to come 
inward at what we were doing in the business, the decisions that had been made at the outset of the campaign, and the board as well. So there was scrutiny across the board. So obviously the a very intense time around that when you're kind of going through the review and you're waiting for recommendations to come out. When the recommendations come out, was everyone in a in line to go, we need to implement every single one of these? Or was there kind of people going, well, yes, I agree with some of these and I don't agree with those. We should only do the ones we agree with. Or was it a blanket, yes, we need to fulfill all recommendations to improve our sport and the team of the Silver Ferns? Well, I think the um, the sort of the, the key thing we wanted to do was address the Silver Ferns environment because we know when you get the environment right, the performance will come. Um, the recommendations were simply recommendations. There was no mandate that we must implement everything that was on the list. However, we actually started making changes before the recommendations were made public. And that wasn't on the back of the recommendations. It was based on the back of work we'd already started. So to a large extent, we were already lined up to the changes that we thought needed to take place in the environment. Uh, and the recommendations highlighted some new things and reinforced our current thinking already. So um, I think ultimately we have we've reached a really good place in terms of what has been changed in the environment, what has been added to it. And um, we're starting to see the results of that coming through in terms of the team environment, the culture, and where they're heading towards World Cup in July. So we've talked a lot about the Silver Ferns and that elite player point of view, and, and obviously just talked about that review. With netball being New Zealand's largest female participation sport, how does your team balance a focus on participation versus the elite side? You know, that's quite, it is quite challenging because the shop front window has generally been the elite team in any sporting organisation. And for us, it's the Silver Ferns. But I think you only need to get down to netball on a Saturday and see all those little people that just are loving having the opportunity to be out there, be with their mates, have some fun and really connect socially to really realise that is where the heart of the sport is. And I think that any sporting environment that you go into where you can get out there in amongst those kids that are loving being involved, it gives you that renewed energy to ensure that everything that you do is balanced to their wellness and experience in the game as much as it is those elite athletes. So we talk about the grassroots being the heart of the sport. The lifeblood is then the volunteers of our communities. How does, so how does New Zealand Netball foster the recruitment, development and retainment of volunteers? It's an ongoing um, challenge for all sports, particularly here in New Zealand. I'm sure it's no different. We thrive on our volunteers. And I think we're really excited that we've recently been able to um, secure uh, a person who's got a sole focus on volunteer recruitment and supported by one of our uh, corporate 
partners and they see the benefit of being able to really wrap those volunteers um, in a bubble of um, achievement and to give them opportunities and the recognition for all of the hard work that they do out there in our sporting community. So we're excited about what that's going to look like going forward. But um, we're very cognizant that volunteers are what makes sport and increasingly the pressures on their time and their commitments with their family and just how busy life has got has changed that. So it's about bringing back that recognition. How do you ensure that they feel fulfilled in their roles um, and that it's got longevity and we're recruiting that next, next wave of people to stay involved in sport? So important. The New Zealand Netball community rallied around and came together with the establishment of the Tanya Dalton Foundation following her tragic passing. Can you explain to our listeners the impact of her legacy um, as one of New Zealand's best Silver Fern players? Well, so Tanya is someone that was incredibly dear to so many in netball, but also across the wider sporting community. And her legacy is a foundation that she has set up that supports young women and girls as they develop in their sporting careers. And I think it's such, um, it's such fitting recognition from someone like Tanya that she is on, you know, even that she's not with us now, she's able to leave a legacy. And these young women that are benefiting from her foundation and the program that they go through, they're absolutely outstanding young individuals. And um, I feel very proud that as a silver fern, she's gone on to do amazing things for not only netball, but for young women in our sporting context. So, yeah, it's something that we're all incredibly proud of and, um, you know, continue to support as regularly as we can. Wonderful. There's been a lot of attention on mental health from an athlete point of view in recent times. However, what needs to be done to ensure that the health and wellness of our coaches and the employees in the sport industry are being looked after more effectively? Well, good question. Um, from our perspective, we know that from coaches that their challenges are not dissimilar to athletes and there needs to be an increased focus on the demands in their working world. And in particular, and I just applaud our high performance sport for this, more frequently they're starting to ask the question around how do we support our female coaches? Because the challenges for a female in this coaching environment are different to the men in the coaching environment. And all the program and support networks needs to be tailored for those, um, those differences. We can't assume a one size fits all model for these coaches. So our environment here, we're really starting to take a different lens to it. And netball leads the way in terms of number of female coaches in our um, elite sport. So there's a lot that can be gained from tapping into their insight about how do we do a better job. Um, and clearly with staff, that's increasingly important as well. For our staff, we always encourage everyone to stay active. We do simple things like we have a wellness day where actually it's all tools down, no one is on email, we're all out of the office, see you later, see you on Monday, and I tell you, it's one of the best things that we ever put in place. 
because if you're not getting a million emails from your your colleague who's just across the the office, it's quite <laughs> empowering. You can go on and actually, you know, have a good day, um, reconnect with your family, just have some time out to yourself. So increasingly, we look at ways to ensure that we're looking after our people. On a case-by-case basis, we have specific leave in addition to your normal company leave that just looks at those roles that have those unusual hours or extended periods away from home. Increasingly, it's it's so important because if you can keep good people, um, you're so much better for it. Definitely. So in your role, you know, you've talked about it, it's, it's a very demanding role in, in being in a sport organization, uh, especially with limited resources. So how are you continuing continually learning and developing and growing as a person? Well, I think you've got to take something from every uh, challenge or issue or every little win that you get. So from the, you know, I've got a, I'm very committed to keeping learning because I don't think you can stay static. I learned, I've learned so much over this last 18 months as part of our review things that I would do again, things that I would change, um, but really critiquing myself around, okay, how do we be better next time or or what was the learning? And I think you've got to have a growth mindset in sport because it reinvigorates you to go for that next challenge. Um, if you sit static, you know, or you settle, well, that's what you're going to get. You're going to get what you put into it. Um, and from my perspective, I don't ever actually want to settle and that energizes me it's like okay right what's the next challenge where is the next opportunity how can we change the situation here what went well what didn't Um, and for me that is invigorating and energizing and it keeps you going particularly when things are tough Um, but I also I've got to make time to get outside do some exercise, reconnect with people that aren't involved in my day-to-day working life. And it just brings that different perspective and you realize that, um, you know, it's a big bad world out there and and your challenges are only part of what's going on out there. So that's been really important to do as well. So I get the picture that you don't sit still for very, very long. So do you have any other (laughs) habits or rituals that allow you to bring your A-game and deliver sort of high performance as a leader in the office each day? Well, I think for me, I, I exercise in the morning. I get up and I get out the door and I commit to it and I hold myself accountable because I know there's going to be 10 other people there and I, I don't want to be the one that slept in that morning. But that kind of just gives me a rev up for the day. And I think it's it is quite good because it gets your brain thinking, gets you gets you ready to face that next challenge. And um, after the after a good cup of coffee, then the world's your oyster. But um, yeah, it's it's about just getting up. That's my ritual: get up, get out the door, do something, interact with some different people, and then um, you know work out what you've got to achieve that day. So I can see your passion and your focus for continually improving, but we all know it's so important to be able to step out and free your mind. So what is the one thing that allows you to 
totally get away from the work that you do and be able to really reset your body and mind? So when we came back from London, as um, you know, we were probably in our late 30s, the one thing that we decided we wanted to do, and it's a real Kiwi thing, um, is have a batch. And I forget the term that's used in Australia, but this was being able to have a sort of a bolt hold at the beach that we could go to and actually not be contactable by phone, um, just effectively off the grid. And so we, before we um, did anything else, we went up north, up uh, in the north of New Zealand to a really quiet, secluded spot and decided that we were going to to look at getting a batch up there. And, and we take the kids, I've got a seven-year-old and a five-year-old, and we go up there and all that matters is how much sand you've got on your hair or between your toes or in your togs, very Kiwi again, um, and how much how much fun you had that day. And it is so absolutely fantastic. It's such a great leveller. All of the kids up there are like free-range chickens. They go to and from properties. It's safe. And it's kind of like New Zealand 20, 30 years ago. Um, and you come back and you feel, you know, a million bucks. So that's what we do to get away. Are you bringing back some great childhood memories of living in New Zealand myself? <laughs> yeah. So we all know smart people have great answers, but the best people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Oh, well, to be perfectly honest, I went, and I know it's kind of connected to work, but it's kind of not. I went and coached my um, five-year-old daughter's future Ferns netball team last Wednesday. And that was my first experience of coaching five and six-year-olds. Um, and let me tell you, we only had five that cried. So somehow that is a record. One of them was my daughter. Um, and I had a chat with Nolene Taurua before I took the first session. And I said, oh, Noel's uh, you know, I've got these five-year-olds. It should be a piece of cake. She said, good luck to you. <laughs> so it was doing something for the first time and being a bit bold. And uh, I needed to have a glass of wine at the end of it. It was only 4.30, but that's okay. Um, yeah, so that's about doing something for the first time. And look, thoroughly enjoyed it. And then um, going to do it all again this week. Beautiful. If you, if you can't lead successfully a group of four or five-year-olds, so if you can, you'll be able to lead anyone in the world. Oh, look, I hope so. They're a handful. What is the one question that you would love to solve? Oh, now this is a little bit more serious from my perspective because I think it's something that's really relevant here in New Zealand and is the same in Australia. I really would love... Uh, to see increased level or move towards equality um, in ge by gender for sports in terms of the media, in terms of participation and in terms of funding. And I think that that would be a legacy that I'd be incredibly proud to be part of my time here at Netball. Oh, I like that question. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. It's a biggie. 
it's a biggie, right? Because I want my daughter to have the same level of opportunity as my son in sport. And I think that um, we've got a way to go there. It's moving in the right direction, but it does, it is going to take uh, potentially a few interventions to really ensure that that progresses forward a little bit quicker, I think. Yeah, I agree with you. How do you know when you're in a peak state of mind? I have this weird thing that when something when something goes well or we achieve something, I get this weird natural high and it, it's a buzz. And for me, that's when I know things are clicking. When you're coming up with the ideas, you're able to interact with people and bounce ideas off without fear of reprisal. That makes me feel incredibly good that, you know, we're on the top of our game here. We've got some good ideas coming. You've just completely trashed my idea, but that's okay. I feel okay with that because collectively, we've got a plan for something that could be amazing. So I think I know when when that all clicks, it feels incredible. It's like this kind of big rush of ideas and working with people that are equally as passionate about what you're trying to solve kind of really brings out the best in me and, and um, then you know you're, you're honking and, and things are going well. So I know people would love to be on top of the world. So how can people learn more about what you do and what would be the best way for people to connect with you if they want to ask more questions? Look, we're always available through um, either my LinkedIn profile or through our, um, our website, getting in touch with netball at info at netballnz.co.nz. Um, really happy. It's all about empowering others. And if you can help someone else be as successful as possible in their career, um, you actually achieve yourself. And, and I'm all for that too. Jenny, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I've thoroughly enjoyed that journey from holding the netball for the first time and trying to avoid getting hit to moving into your career and starting out in finance and being able to ground yourself really quickly in some really successful companies overseas and the benefits of being outside your comfort zone and living in a completely different country, culture and way of doing things. You've had some major challenges that you've tackled head on and have done a fantastic job with a real pragmatic leadership approach in your role as CEO at Netball New Zealand. And it's, it's comforting to hear a number of the strategies that you're putting into place around your team to ensure that they're both active and healthy, that their wellness is in a good place in what is quite challenging when you have limited resources as a sporting organization. I can see some big things for you in the future as you continue to evolve in your role at Netball and obviously whatever comes after that. So thank you very much for your sharing your, your courage, your wisdom, your belief, your story, and the way you lead for the Sports People Recruitment Active CEO listeners. Thank you, thanks Craig. This week's Active CEO Wellness Tip is, it's not about you. You are here to serve. You are here to contribute and you are here to make a difference. As a leader, you have to let go of the ego and you have to make sure that everything that happens is about the team. 
It is there for them and ensuring that they can shine every single day. You have to make them feel a part of it. You have to make them feel like they want to do it because they believe in it. They are motivated by it, whether it's both internal and external motivation, and they want to see results for the company. You have to step outside of it. You cannot drive it as though it's all about you. Otherwise, it will fail in the end and you will be left alone. And it is already a lonely place as a leader. So let's make sure that we take that loneliness away and we make sure we feel part of something much bigger by ensuring that we are serving the people that we work with and allowing them to make the real difference. Thoroughly enjoyable and refreshing listening to Jenny Wiley, the CEO of Nepal New Zealand, um, talk about her leadership style and how she has grown so quickly in a short period of time as the leader of New Zealand's number one female sport and, and holds the limelight right up there with the All Blacks in New Zealand as part of the psyche and the culture and the community. Everyone feels for both, both sports and it's great to see a female sport having that coverage. We'd obviously like to see them uh, be paid as well and, and have the media coverage um, stronger, but she is doing such a great job there. She has led through some very challenging times over the past couple of years. And for those that live outside of New Zealand, the public and media scrutiny was very full on. It is, uh, it is like probably the scrutiny that you would see in most countries over a politician or a prime minister um, going through um, term, uh, sort of tough times. She seems to have a real balanced approach from when she was quite young and very positive. She's obviously wanting to take on challenges all the time, which I think is extremely important as a leader. She's also figured out how to get a bit of balance in there and her team hold her accountable, which is absolutely key. So she obviously sets a great environment to enable that to happen. In most environments, the staff members don't feel comfortable and being able to say, hey, look, you need to pull back or you need to spend more time on this or hold you accountable to what you say. Generally, they'll sit back and talk between themselves and ruminate, I suppose, in a way. So it's great that she's actually got their trust and loyalty to be able to do that. Uh, the sport seems to be in very safe hands and it's good to see that they're moving in the right direction with someone who has a really good pragmatic leadership approach. She is empathetic and she holds, she's very humble as a leader. She also is very clear on where the direction they're going, which is extremely important. If you don't know where you're heading, how do you know you're ever going to get there? So this is the Sports People Recruitment Active CEO podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.